Okay, so after a day of automobile and audio and plumbing problems and obstacles, we're finally here with myself, Mike, and Jack, another another friend from the area, to talk about, to continue our conversation that I started with Mike about Game of Thrones and why it's compelling, and particularly about monarchy and and kingship. So how do you want to be identified, Jack? How do I want to be identified? Yeah, what is, like, uh, what's your pronoun and everything? My pronouns are, are, are planet, <laughs> planet, planet The self. royal we. Yeah. That's me. I'm the royal we. No. Okay. Uh, what, but what are you, are you, like, do you want to be named by your full name and, uh, like, who you are? That seems unwise. So, Mike, you brought up a question that I, like, didn't really talk about. Why would someone be like a Yorkist? Like, what does that, what does that mean to them? Why would that still be like a live question, right? Uh, yeah, I wanted to know more about what makes people into Yorkists, or, or uh, you're talking about the like the Jacka and the Jacobites, those right? Jackos. What are they called? <laughs> <laughs> Jacobites, right? Right. Like, the, what's like, what's the psychological reason? behind yeah. like all this fascination with all these alternative um, lineages. Yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of skirted around that question in the conversation, but then I thought of, uh, of Jack where we've sort of talked about exactly that kind of thing before, right? Like uh, what, firstly, like what is it about like failed claimants to the throne that people might still hold on to? Why would someone be like a Yorkist or a Jacobite? And... How does that fit into the bigger question of why do we still talk so much and think so much about kings and queens? Why is that so compelling to us in general? So specifically, what I mean, what do you think, Jack, about when it comes to things like being a York supporter or a Stuart supporter? I think when you say that, do you mean like today, someone who is, is an yeah. avid Yorkist? Either, either. I mean, I don't. The time. There, I mean, certainly there's. There are no avid Yorkists today, like there were in the 15th century, mm-hmm. right? But that's just one example of how people can uh, kind of wrap up their identities, right, in in a cause of a certain dynastic claimant. Well, I think. I mean, I think you, you know, you used the I word there, right? Like identity. I think that that's that's a key part of it. So beyond the question the implicit question that mike is asking is why do people why are people you know care about a given claimant beyond the degree to which it's simply in their self-interest to yeah. prefer yeah. that claimant right because it's right you know if that's the case it's like oh well you know he's my cousin and if he becomes king then i'll be a duke right? i have then, more power yeah. i have more connections so, yeah which you know, I beyond think- that and I think that was the main reason in the actual Wars of the Roses, that was the main reason why people took one side or another, right? It yeah. was just where will that f- advance my interests in the political realm, right, in the arena. But it's also you can really idealize like a disinherited dynasty, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think people do. I think that the sort of counterfactual history is always going to be more compelling because right, they right. never... They never had to make any of the tough calls that actually happened. They never had to make compromises. Yeah. Yeah. So you can always imagine, oh, if only 
the true king were back, none of these bad things would have turned out this way, right? We would still, uh, we, the world would still be ordered the right way, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's almost the way a lot of people talked about it, right? Like the king will have his own again and everything will be set right, right? Yeah, well, and this is also, you know, this is not only in monarchical systems, right? Like it, people, I mean, today, there are people who part of their enthusiasm for Trump or even for previous, you know, Republican candidates were returning to the glory of Reagan. And, yeah. you know, on the other yeah. side, I think in the Democrats, there's a lot of talking about like JFK and Camelot and, and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, FDR and returning to those sort of notions of like what, 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 a, what an America should look like. Before right. we got led astray by yeah. whatever it is, neoliberalism, whatever, whatever the fall from grace was, right? Yeah, and and the fact is, the fact that there always is a fall from fall from grace, I think, is potentially evidence at least that this is something that is more something that takes place over the course of an individual's life and their sort of progression of of their worldview, mm-hmm. right? And unless that it's some necessarily inherent eternal thing where it's like, oh, you know, the Yorkists, you know, were the rightful kings and therefore their rule would have been different. Right. We can today we look at that and we're like, well, you know, that seems a little silly, but we, you know, whatever side you're on, whether it's, you know, whatever FDR or if JFK hadn't been shot or if RFK had become president or, you know, whatever alternative history you want to have. It's it feels more compelling, or it's like, oh, if only that had been the case. And so, so you mean you think like in a person's political and intellectual development, there's like a stage that a lot of people get to where they look back to some sort of lost line lineage in the past and kind of project their ideals onto it, right? Like I think so, and and I and I suspect that you know if you want to get very sort of reductive about it and take away from people their their own agency in determining their beliefs you say oh it's because they were in this environment at this time at this formative stage and this was the this was the direction that history seemed to be going right and so right. their worldview becomes tangent to the curve that was being drawn at that point okay. and when as the further that tangent does the tangent of the hypothesis sort of diverges <laughs> from i'm sorry if this is becoming kind of <laughs> That's peculiar okay. we're okay with some geometry the actual arc of yeah of history it gets further and further apart right yeah and the from... more idealized this this hypothetical alternative world becomes yeah well i have another take at least when it, in regards to monarchies not so much for reagan but I think there's like a little bit, there's like a cynical thing that's happening, which is like if you're the sort of person who questions government and society, it's like, say you don't like the current state of, I don't know, what a monarch is doing. It's like you can criticize the policies, but then there's this there's this rub, which is like, hey, and even by your own rules, you got there in like the wrong way. It, yeah. it becomes a sim- it's like a symbol of what you see that's wrong with the person, but it's like particularly like maybe infuriating to some people or really like gets people going because it's like you're you're not even playing by your own rules. You didn't even get to the throne the way you should have. Like it's it's this double like injustice. 
Right. Well, and I, and I think that it's very historically significant, like I mentioned, that the when the Lancasters come to the throne, there's always this cloud of illegitimacy over them the whole time of like, wait, what? How exactly do you have a legitimate claim to this authority? And then with the Hanovers later as well, you know, it was an act of parliament that sort of reshuffled the whole line of succession so that the so that a, a a king who is favorable to parliament's views and interests could be installed like how does that how i i sort of keep thinking what's the point in having a king if you're not at least going to have the right one when you know how could anyone believe that that's legit so do you think it's kind of a combination of what jack said there's this psychological process that happens where you think about where you were during the time of a certain candidate and, and what what your ideology is is tangent from what the reality of the situation is and there's also this kind of like double offensive thing that happens for people too which there's the illegitimacy makes it even more painful is it like a combo of the two you know i think that that's probably a good description of how a lot of people become like loyalists of deposed monarchs but I also think there's something else at work too, because some people became Jacobites in like the 1740s, and they had never known the the Stuart dynasty in power. You know, it became it became a a way loyalism to a deposed dynasty could become a way to imagine an alternate world. It all it's almost like radicalism and reactionism together at once, right? Imagining well. We don't have to have this corrupted world, whatever it is, of inequality or uh, materialism. And if only we could return back to some past age, which may even be beyond your own memory, which may be back into a totally idealized past, right? And the word revolution originally means a return, a completion of a cycle, right? So it's like we think of revolution as this leap into the future, you know, of like the French Revolution. But even at even the French Revolution at the time, people said this this revolution is a victory of the ancients over the moderns because it was going back to a civic republican ideal instead of absolutism. So it's like, the, you know, the radical... It's almost like people, and I think you'd agree with this, Jack, people never really can formulate a totally new vision of the world. It's always you have to draw on some imagined past, right? I, th- I think that's certainly true. I mean, or rather, that is, that is exactly the, the type of statement to which I, I do tend to agree. I, I think, <laughs> in, in particular, in the cases of, of things like, you know, Jacobitism after, after any, any reasonable chance that it could happen, I think part of it is certainly a desire to return to an idealized past or an imagined past. Um, and part of it is probably, I'm going to say contrarianism, but when you mm-hmm. when you say that it has a kind of pejorative implication, which I don't necessarily mean in this case, because I think it's, it's a contrarianism that is... It's oppositional. It's born out of, yeah, and it's yeah. born out of legitimate frustration, potentially, uh, with the course of, you know, the way the world is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you know, at any given point in time, and and it is, you know, it's it's sort of like not as you said, right? You're you're not 
you you can't really create a new idea out of whole cloth at any time, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I think that also specifically monarchy sort of I think Mike was gesturing at this that monarchy is distinct from a republican or democratic republican regime in that the monarch is a symbolic person, right? And in a way they're they're like the symbolic anchor of the order of the world, right? They're like the the link, they're the linchpin that holds all the different institutions of society together, right? Everything, it's royal this, royal that, and and they're a link to sort of the invisible or spiritual world, right? Monarchs, traditionally, you know, if you go back to like the early Middle Ages, they're almost more like ceremonial shaman type figures more than they are government officials, right? And so the belief that you don't have the right monarch is it's very destabilizing mm -hmm. right and if and if you if you feel that the world is disordered that there isn't justice in the sense of right ordering of 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 the world then you can look to the monarch and say this the the, the symbolic center is wrong so so right? what you're saying is you're almost you're saying that it's it's kind of works both ways in the sense that uh because because the monarch is not merely a person who is the head of the state, but in a sense is almost a metaphor mm -hmm. for human affairs in the world, in the order of nature, mm -hmm. and a metaphor for the order of nature in human affairs. That when the order of nature in human affairs appears disordered, sort of ipso facto, that is evidence that the monarch is incorrect. Yeah. And so you seek some historical alternative claimant. This is kind of yeah. uh, similar to this notion in um, in sort of Chinese mm -hmm. imperial thought of the, the mandate, the mandate of, of heaven, heaven yeah. right? Where it's yeah. like... If the, there's a famine, that means that this dynasty no longer has legitimacy. If there's some disaster, if the state is not functioning, this, this dynasty has lost the mandate of kind of the invisible realm of the cosmos, right? Yeah. Um, and well, I think I think we should talk more about that, but I just want to also briefly point out. So when we were talking about Game of Thrones, I said, well, the Starks are sort of like a combination of the Yorks and the Stuarts, right? It's sort of these stories and others too, but like kind of blended up together, right? And Mike asked, well, why would someone be Yorkist? And you know, I don't really know, and there isn't much like really overt organized Yorkism today although it may be around if you scratch the surface. And I think for, for Yorkists, a lot of it, it's about regional pride, right? York is sort of like almost traditionally the second capital of England, or like the northern capital. You know, and the Archbishop of York was seen as like, for a long time, it was seen as like equal to the Archbishop of Canterbury. They were almost like two Englands, north and south. And so, so I don't know if this is... Uh, accurate enough. I don't know enough about English history to know whether this would be an accurate sort of inducement, but would it be appropriate to tie the differences in Northern and Southern English culture as they kind of became particularly clear during the Industrial Revolution to this? Or do you think that that's disaggregated? Like, would you consider that to be almost Yorkist in the sense where like Birmingham and Manchester and everything become these manufacturing 
towns in a way that doesn't really occur in southern England, or do you think that's a different thing? Um, well, I think that there's a deep-rooted sense of difference that goes back certainly at least to the, well, to the 14th century, really, where London and the home, so-called home counties around London are more commercial, more connected to continental Europe, uh, and the North was more agrarian, more kind of locally isolated, sort of less affected by commercialism. And then that got kind of strangely disrupted by industrialization. But with industrialization, you get this huge industrial working class who also, I think, feel similarly kind of alienated, uh, very different from London, from the world of finance and trade, and pick up a lot of the same kind of sentiments and symbols. I mean, I just remember the other day, there's this sort of like pinky lefty British commentator, Owen Jones, who's like, you know, big in The Guardian and, and you know, is at least nominally a left-wing guy, oppositional. And he was on his podcast complaining, I'm losing my northern accent. It's like his northern accent is what gave him some sort of authenticity to speak as like a working class person, which he was losing as he became more Londonized, mm -hmm. right? And I think that this is a lot of what Game of Thrones is drawing on, right? Is like the Lannisters and the Martells kind of represent more of the Southern English world, you know, more worldly. And then the Starks are, are northern, they're rugged and uh, closer to the earth, mm -hmm. you know, and the old gods, as they say. Um, so I'm repeating some of what I already said before, but, I, but what I'm trying to say is I think the continuing attachment to the Yorks as a cause sort of serves as a vehicle for this regionalism and this sort of clinging to regional difference. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I looked and I tried to find, are there any organized Yorkists today? And I couldn't find anything, but as I mentioned, there is the Richard III Society, right? Which is this social club that wants, supposedly wants to redeem the reputation of Richard III and to say that he's been wrongly maligned by Shakespeare, right? And that's fine, but you know, why do they care so much about protecting the reputation of Richard III? Like, what's the big deal? Right? And you look at their website. I looked at their website and their Facebook because, you know, they're up to date, right? And it's all pictures of old buildings around York. It's like York Minster, St. Mary's Abbey, the Merchant Adventurers Hall. Like they've had a big annual meeting in the <clears throat> Merchant Adventurers Hall at York. It's all this kind of romance of York mm -hmm. as kind of this real, you know, authentic old England. Yeah. In implicit contrast, I think, to London. To London, which is sort of a, a very clearly a, a modern global city. Yeah, very much so. You know, in a glittering city of, you know, now it's really a city of glass skyscrapers. I mean, it looks practically like Hong Kong as of the last time I saw it, right? And with Jacobitism, I think there's like two levels to it, right? With Jacobitism, partly it's an expression of Scottish pride right, and Scottish localism and attachment to, uh, you know, to the clans and this very romanticized kind of image of the old Scottish way of life, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also, I think, a further layer of 
Jacobitism as representing sort of the older, non-industrial, non-commercial Britain, right? The Britain of, of you know, lords and, and of um, reciprocal duties, right yeah. monarch to country lord to their to their households and their uh, clients right uh, a society and, of stable reciprocal relationships right yeah and one of the things one of the things that i noticed when i lived there i i think is very it's endemic it it becomes clear it's very obvious when you see it as an American, and I do think it's actually key to British identity, is all of those relations are, and many and many other appropriate relations between yourself and various institutions, are not explicitly enumerated. Mm-hmm. The, the unenumeration of them, the implicit quality of them, mm-hmm. I think is, is a key part of them. And I think for Jacobitism... I mean, it, it's kind of, I guess, come back in a way as this tag for a certain type of reaction to modernity. And I think part of what is compelling about it in this sense is the idea of returning to implicit relations and implicit right. obligations. Customs. That's, that's what than, they called customs yes, traditionally, right? Yeah. Rather than explicit ones which mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. in our current society financialized essentially yeah yeah and bureaucratized yeah right Bu- yeah bureaucratic and and financial right and you know there's a growing scottish national movement right it i mean it has its roots in the 1930s 40s 50s maybe i'll talk about that a little later but um it's really picked up in about the last 25 years and there actually was for a little while an organized Jacobite party that ran some candidates in some elections in like the early 2000s, right? Sort of short-lived. And it's interesting, this party, this Jacobite party was pro-independence, right? And Republican. (laughs) They were, they proposed an independent Scotland that would be a republic, no monarch. So it's like they had gone... Despite the fact that they were... Named after a king. Named after after a king (laughs) and... Yeah. took the name of a, a movement that was explicitly about preserving absolute monarchy. Right, right. Or that for many of its supporters yes. was about preserving, well, and certainly preserving divine right monarchy, right? Which is a distinction I try to make, too, is that sometimes we conflate together divine right with absolutism, mm-hmm. when actually many people have believed in some kind of limits or representative institutions, but also believe that the monarch is divinely appointed, right and has a divine authority right there that and they have in and and that's and that's kind of traditional too right like i was saying if you look back to like the merovingian kings of the franks and uh they were ceremonial figures even more than they were real political rulers right um and now also more recently there's a new jacobite group in scotland that's organized that is an invitation only like club. So they do like reenactments, you know, they're sort of the kilt and bagpipe set, but they they also have a political message, right? And they're called the Royal Oak Society. Right. So do you get the message the the reference, right, to the Royal Oak from uh, uh Charles Charles the First, well Charles the Second, actually. So during the Civil War, Charles the First is defeated, the son has to flee. 
Mm-hmm. And according to a story, while he was being chased by parliamentarian troops trying to escape the country, he hid in a large oak tree, uh-huh. right? And that's the royal oak, right? And I realized the oak tree clearly is a very important symbol, right? This sturdy, long-lasting, living tree, right? And it hides and protects the king in this story, right? And then if you look at, like, the Robin Hood ballads, the major oak, you know, Mm -hmm. Robin Hood and his men hide from the sheriff in the major oak. Uh, And then in America... You know what the symbol of Connecticut is? You lived in Connecticut yeah, for a little while, it is, right? It is the oak tree. It's a charter oak. Oh, charter oak. Right? So, so in that story, the, the royal commissioners are coming to revoke the charters of the New oh, England and colonies. They, they hide the tar- charter and they oak hide it in an oak tree, which becomes the charter oak. So there's this almost kind of paganish belief yeah. in like the oak tree. Well, it's interesting also because I know I, I expect that. Mike is also familiar with some of these, but I know that a lot of English folk songs talk about trees and particular tree breeds that are the there there are tree breeds that come up as like a meronym for for England or for your home part of England or various mm-hmm, things like that, mm-hmm. and the oak is always mentioned among them. Yeah, yeah, the oak is like the most indestructible. It's kind of and it and it's like it's like an anchor, right? It's like things get built, things get torn down. The ancient oak tree is still there. It's like the feeling of permanence, right? Um, and I think that that's, in a way, maybe that's even a more primal symbol, right? And that the king, or emperor, or queen, is like a human who takes up that role of like I am the thing that lasts that. You know, uh, generations come and go, but the monarch is still there, right? And have you heard of the king's two bodies? So this is like one little academic reference I'll Never throw in. Know. But uh, So there's a book that had a pretty big influence on historians uh, by Stanley Kantrowitz uh, back in, I think, the 50s, right? And it called The King's Two Bodies, where he, he basically says, well... Uh, According to medieval doctrine and the 15-1600s absolutists, the king was believed to have two bodies, a sort of human body that you can like touch and like stab and such, and then like a heavenly body that is immortal, right? Which is different from the soul, which presumably everyone else also has. Well, your soul, well, if you if you kill someone, including a king or a queen, their soul is going to go to heaven, right? And you like mm-hmm. say goodbye, you send it off, you say prayers, right? But the but the sort of heavenly, the divine body of the king yeah. doesn't die and it doesn't leave. It just changes into the next guy, right? right. It's like the king is always there, right? There's always a king. And I think um, that is maybe sort of a, a doctrine that captures a, f- a sense of what people want out of a monarch, right? And what I think we still find compelling. They want a, they want a living sense of permanence. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of want to have your cake and eat it too, right? This is a living, the, breathing person, but state, also, you know, the state lasts longer than the life of any individual. But right. you can't, you can't touch a state. You can't really relate to a state on an emotional level in the same way that you can to a being right. who embodies that state. Right, right, and like like we were saying in another conversation, it's it's not so easy, or maybe not so natural to organize people around a set of abstract ideas right and and you can talk about how successful that is but but it it 
it's somehow more relatable to organize people's loyalties in a society around a person. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you, again, I think this is sort of, as we were saying before, the the most primal relationships that you have are with other people as individuals, right? Like you have relationships with your parents, you have relationships with your siblings or partners that are that are fundamentally different in kind to any relationship that you would have with an abstract entity, right? Which are, mm-hmm. we, you know, we live in a world where there are many uh, legal people who are not actual people and mm-hmm. they have a large proportion of a large proportion of the decisions are you know laid at the feet of these legal people like companies like the states state, yeah like or actors entities within the state yeah but our our minds are not designed to relate personally to abstract collections of ideas they're designed to relate personally to fellow individual flesh and blood human beings yeah yeah and i think in that context it it makes a lot of sense that we consume so much fiction and drama about kings and queens right it's so much more compelling even if there is a political message to it it's so much more compelling to see the human drama that has political implications than it is to say watch you know like a debate club talk about the fine points of the fourth amendment you know and you know in game of thrones i think is just sort of our latest uh you know romance right Mm -hmm. and the irony is that we say well game of thrones is less romantic right it's more gritty it's more cynical but in another way it it is a romance and it's a and it's a romance a lot like the arthur legends yeah the the term romance has become kind of perverted from its original meaning right like yeah it's i guess it means what we mean by romance now but it also has a broader meaning of capturing the full i don't know the full richness of of human i would maybe emotional conflict and Mm -hmm. the emotional Mm -hmm. strife that arises from attempting to accomplish things in the world yeah yeah and and i think the the drama is a lot about conflicting desires conflicting loyalties right about capturing uh you know there i always say like there's no there's no one principle no one formula that tells you what human life is all about or if there is it's like way beyond you know we're nowhere close to it right everything is always about values desires and loyalties that pull against one another right and if you look at like the arthur legends right it's this ideal of chivalry, these heroic self-sacrificing knights. They're protecting the realm. They're going to find the Holy Grail, right? But it all falls apart because the king's wife sleeps with his best friend. Right? And I think, yeah. And I think that this is part of why why people consume these dramas and why they have in a, why they have more prestige than you know a soap opera, right? Because mm-hmm. it is it is. In essence, it's a soap opera, except the stakes are higher, right? If, you know, if the if the king's best friend, you know, the king's best friend sleeps with his wife, and it's a, you know, it's a it's a constitutional crisis, like, you know, you know, some random person's best friend sleeps with their wife, and it's a it's a soap opera, right? And mm-hmm, we use that mm-hmm. you know we use that term in a derogatory manner, and I think, you know, you can you can go either way. You can say, oh well. 
this drama is something that's fundamentally compelling to people and sometimes we need to you know to decorate it with stakes that you know are life and death for large numbers mm -hmm, of people mm -hmm. by putting Gotta it in the, the context stakes, yeah. of you know this affecting a kingdom and sometimes we don't you know but right. the fundamental conflict the fundamental thing that makes it compelling is not different well and we as modern people draw this distinction between public and private affairs you know that uh matters of family and marriage uh, are are private or personal they're not political right but that's not a distinction that existed before 1600 at the earliest and, and right? i would i would also say that that i mean the distinction although it's although it's pretty fundamental i think to a lot of our ideas it falls up pretty falls apart pretty rapidly on contact with reality yeah, yeah, right. Well, and you keep having to rebuild it, right? You keep having to rush in and say, wait, where's the boundary we need to build? You know, does it matter that this person, uh, how they behave towards their spouse or their children before we vote for them for this political office, right? It's like we're constantly having to redraw the line of like, where where do we keep this distinction between public and private? And, and, and yeah, again, I would say that the fact that we have, the fact that we constantly are struggling with that is evidence that 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 distinction is not particularly meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Um, now let's let's look at, at at Game of Thrones, right? So people, obviously there are multiple players who want to end up as the ruler on the Iron Throne, right? And you, so one of these people, you've said you liked Stannis Baratheon, right? Yes. So this is if, so if you, if you don't know or don't remember, Robert Baratheon dies and then there's, uh, uncertainty and ambiguity about who should be the successor, right? And one of the claimants is his brother, right? A middle brother, Stannis Baratheon, who argues that the king's sons are not legitimate. He, in fact, uh, well, why don't, why don't you explain, right? What yeah. does he say? Sure. So he says, well, so I, I mean, part of, I think part of what a lot of, what makes him compelling to a lot of people who, who do support his claim mm -hmm. um, is his attitude about this. And he does, there is, you know, a scene, I don't know if it's in the television show, but it's in the books where his kind of right-hand man Davos says, why do you want this so much? Mm -hmm. It's, this is going to be a huge amount of pain and suffering for you, for your family. Like this is, it may not succeed. And he says, I don't want to be the king. I am the king. Mm -hmm. And, Firstly, you know, he is he is correct, right? In this sense, I don't I don't know I don't know where we are on on spoilers for a book that's been out for like what yeah that's 15 fine years now that's fine but like <laughs> um, get with it, people. Yeah. <laughs> but, so the the previous king Robert Robert Baratheon his, his children his putative children are not his right they're mm -hmm, his wife's mm -hmm. with his wife's brother right and so so. Stannis is next in line. He is the he is the Robert's younger brother, right? And Renly is younger than him. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, why does anyone even bring up Renly yeah. as a possibility? Doesn't really make sense so. there. But uh, so everything Stannis does is really the appropriate thing to do on right. the understanding and that he is he now is the, the next king, king. Right. And this is it's the same where, like, when he goes north. He he responds to the Night's Watch. He mm -hmm. this is the right. this is the appropriate action to do if you already are the king. 
Right. That he has, he has to protect the realm from right. a threat. He's, yeah. he's not, this is not some, for him, this is not some crazy Hail Mary gambit that he's taking to try to end up on the Iron Throne. He mm-hmm. is the king. He, in his mind, so, and this is, this is maybe, to me, like personally, why is his claim compelling to me over the other claimants? And it's because, because everybody else is concerned with being recognized as the king. Mm-hmm. And Stannis is not concerned with being recognized as the king because he knows he's already the king. He yeah. is concerned with ruling the kingdom. He's not out to prove who yeah. he is. Yeah. Well, and I think that this goes to, you know, I personally, I, I'm a small D Democrat, although obviously I see all sides of like why a lot of people like monarchy. I'm sorry, where does, uh, which... Which Game of Thrones claimant do small D Democrats? Well, here's well, here's the support? thing. Some people, okay, so some people like thinking about Tyrion. You know, these guys who are underdogs who have been maligned but are smart, right? It's a very natural kind of middle class thing to gravitate to. It's like, well, he's like the qualified one. Uh, but well, so is Littlefinger, but nobody's really super keen on him. <laughs> well, some people are. Some people are. We talked about that, but no. But Tyrion has much more fans. But many people say, oh, well, really the resolution is nobody, right? Really the resolution is (laughs) the throne will be abolished, right? And somehow power will go to the people at large, right? So it's it's this kind of American democratic aspiration, right? Of like, everyone's fighting over this thing, so let's just throw it overboard and have a more democratic egalitarian society right and that that seems (laughs) that seems like wishful thinking to me well and and it's it does it's not necessarily very appealing right not sexy (laughs) not right not sexy um yeah and it sort of raises the question of well westeros as a realm was only created by a king, the conquest of a particular king, right? Wasn't it Aegon, the conqueror, yet? So what is Westeros without a monarch? Is there therefore no Westeros? You know, like it's, is it, does it, that mean it dissolves? Well, right? this is, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of questions about like yeah. what makes a state, <laughs> right? Like this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of World War One, we we came up with a hypothesis for it and by the beginning of World War II, we realized it was not a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, well, and, you know, and it goes back to, like, Louis XIV, right? I am the state, right? Yeah. If, uh, you know, is there such a thing as, as a state without a symbolic anchor, right? And I think, you know, so I did my research on Freemasonry, right, which is this whole weird belief system unto itself, which maybe I'll talk about more another time. But... Freemasonry, the symbols and stories of monarchy are hugely important, like Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre, and they call it the royal art. Like, it's very tied to kingship. And it's so ironic that now we associate it with the American Revolution and George Washington and the Constitution, and we see it as part of kind of the fabric of American democratic society. And I thought, isn't this, I see a contradiction here, right? But then I realized the contradiction is the story, right? That you're losing 
the symbolic anchor you had with the crown. So you need something to come in and fill the vacuum, right? Uh, you, oh, I was, I was actually thinking it's, th that's one way to think about it. Just based on your description just now, you could also say that, well, what is the king? The king is the state builder. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the reason, you know, the, the idea of, of masonry, right? It's, this is the type of, masonry is the type of project that you can only undertake when you have control of a state, right? At a, you know, at a certain point in history, when you talk about Solomon, King Solomon and Hiram of Tyre, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, th these people build monuments because they're the only ones who can. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if, if this is a if this is a belief system that's very it's very obsessed with the king and maybe you could see it as morphing from the king as reigning monarch to the king at the outset the king as state builder right i the the idea being like the the state creator yes the the inception of yeah yeah well and certainly it's it, it the more you look at it the more obvious it becomes that temple building and architecture are metaphors right for for society building and state building right and the creation of of an order that la a lasting order in the world right and when do people need that more than in the middle of a revolutionary rupture in the middle of chaos right and that's really you know we think of the American Revolution, for instance, as so dignified and, you know, these statesmen sort of leading the ship of state and propounding these beautiful doctrines. But it was very chaotic and uh, uncertain. And it was a civil war. It was a, it was it was truly a civil war. Uh, so people, I think, wanted these sort of sense of order, the feeling of order, the feeling of, of permanence more than ever. You know, and that's when they created these things like the the American seal of state with the, you know, Novo Ordo Seclorum, a new order for the ages and the step pyramid with the eye on top. You know, it's uh, it's it's this kind of same longing that you see in in all monarchical societies. And they were people who had grown up in a monarchical society. You know, that was their that was their world. But but what I think uh this is getting at is that people, I think there's a tension, right? There's a, there's a, a tension and ambivalence between seeing one another as equal, right? Equality as the sort of baseline for human relationships, right? And wanting to have a hierarchy, right? A hierarchy where you have leaders, you have models, right? And, uh, and people are constantly, I think, having to look for ways of reconciling, right? Those two, those two impulses, right? How do we, you know, and, and in America, we have ceremonies around the president, right? And the special titles and dignities of the presidency. And we have four-star generals and all this. At the same time that we say we're legally equal, you mm -hmm. know, it's this double think, right? We're all kind of doing double think all the time. Well, and it's not, you know, it's, it's not just for the president. I mean, these are, yeah, these, are, yeah, the, these are the ones that belong to the state, but obviously... It's at all levels, yeah. yeah. So when I was working on Freemasonry, I realized, well, I had to read some about ritual theory. I'm like, okay, the rituals, this is where it's all going on, right? 
And professors told me, well, read some of these books. And I was, one in particular is called The The Ritual Process by Victor Turner. And I was totally ready not to like it. It's anthropology. I'm like, not, you know, not my thing, right? But it was really, it was so good. And what he argues, what Victor Turner argues is that people develop elaborate rituals largely as a way of negotiating conflicting feelings, right, and conflicting impulses. And particularly rituals were like coronations where you put a person into power. You go through certain processes where you like humble that person. You make them put on ordinary clothes and uh, do drudgery, things like this, before you then lift them up. And uh, they're sort of reborn as the, the ruler that they are, right? And it's a way, in his argument, I think he makes a really good argument, that you're, you're showing that on one level, you're equal to this person. They're no more important than anyone else. But at the same time, they are yeah. more important and better. <laughs> well, and it's, I think it maybe is, I, I expect that part of it is also to produce the illusion of choice. The idea that mm-hmm. you have you have elevated this person who is equal to you to their station. Like you collectively, the people have done so. Okay, right. And it's a way of acting out the group's agreement or recognition that this person holds this station. Yeah. And, um, and, and rituals. So I think that they, they're, I think it's true that they're ways of reconciling these two different ways of being, right? And also, but also their ways of, their points of contact, right, between the sort of everyday normal life and eternal things, eternal ideals, eternal kind of the structure, the eternal structure of the cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and royal ceremonies, you know, coming back and opening parliament each year, right? Or, or, or anything, coronations, royal weddings, are sort of like these ways of acting out the same drama over and over again, even though most of them have really been invented pretty recently, right? But yeah, but the well, idea is, is that yeah, all, all time timeless British traditions were invented in the late Victorian. Era. Yeah, they're all yeah. basically Victorian pageantry, right? Um, but there are other things like uh, the king's touch, right? So we've talked about this before, right? Yeah, so this is where. You, the king kings of England were supposed to be able to heal. Was it scrofula? Uh huh. England touch. and France. Yeah. yeah. The idea was there's this particular form of TB that causes swelling, and it's sometimes called scrofula or the king's evil. And patients would be brought to the monarch, and they would put their hands on the person, like their neck or shoulders, and then they would heal. Right. Uh, and it showed that the the monarch had this kind of otherworldly power to put bodies right right to heal bodies in the same way that they can heal the body of the state of society right um and this continued right through the 1600s right but then the glorious revolution 1688 parliament overthrows james replaces him with william and mary and creates an alternate succession protestant succession of rulers right the Stuart claimants in exile continued performing the king's touch. Yeah. 
they did like the Stannis Baratheon thing. They're like, well, but we, we are, are the king. we are, I'm really the king, so Here's I can proof. do this. Yeah. yeah. And William the Third, William of Orange, the alternate, you know, this usurper really, who was installed with the help of Parliament, refused to do it. And it's not because he thought it was nonsense. He and his successors worried that it wouldn't work. That it wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. He was afraid he didn't have the magic. <laughs> wow. Right. And and in a way, this is how like contractual, secular contractual explanations of government end up kind of infiltrating into politics is because you have to. You have, you have to, to explain, adopt. Well, why is this guy who can't even heal my scrofula the king? Yeah, why does he have all this authority, right? And you have to do, come up with this whole Lockean explanation instead of just saying, well, he's the king. Yeah. Which previously would have been self-explanatory. Well, of course, he, of course he's the king. Of course he has this power, right? So, so ceremony, I think, and ritual tie all of these things together, right? And um, this is one of the things that disappoints me a bit about uh, about Game of Thrones is that you don't see many rituals. There's a little. Yeah. Right? You see some of the funeral. They're, they're emphasized much more in their violation than in their fulfillment. Yeah, well, that's... Because, you which... know, if you think about... If you think about the, uh, the actual weddings that, that occur, for example... <laughs> they're not... They're, they're not, the, they're not the, the cheeriest affairs... Yeah, you know, even they, the ones that don't end not in the bloodshed. best marriages right. being made here. But yeah, you see, so you see a couple of weddings, right, which are fairly straightforward. It's kind of the people come together, they recite you certain. Do see, you do see some rituals of I don't know penance or excruciation, right? Uh, the Lannister Cersei. No. That's right. That's right. So the the just the, a march to the church, right? The sort of fanatical faith of the seven group led yeah. by the High Sparrow go through the yeah these penance rituals, the Walk of Shame, right? Yeah. Walk of Shame, which has also kind of become part of the English language now, right? Doing a Walk yeah. of Shame. But I thought, in my view, that a coronation would be the most important moment that you would encounter in the whole series, right? And I was pretty disappointed when, okay, the, the leaders of the North proclaim Rob Stark as king in the North, right? And basically, they just take their swords out and say, who's the king in the North? And, like, that's it. Like, well, I'm like, where's the pageantry? Where's the anointing? Like, so this is, so this, <laughs> this, there's like a, there's like a bunch of questions here. At least a bunch of, like you know, meta and meta meta level questions, right? So one is, is this a failure? Is this a failure of the writing? But the other is, is this an attempt to differentiate the rugged, simplistic, right, Yorkist right. North from the, you know, decadent, ceremonial, civilized South? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Is it like an attempt to say, like, we're so ceremonial that we don't even have to show it? You know, we're so secure in our. In yeah. Like we're old money, you know? Yeah, yeah, but well, you do see. Yeah, I, sorry, I'm just thinking like this is kind of like the, it's almost the inverse of the zeal of the convert, right? Like the, you know how they're totally how, secure. They're yeah. totally secure in it, right? Like you. I can see that. I can see that. Although when Jon Snow joins the Night's Watch early on, uh, you do they do go out to a weirwood tree. Right, he and some other Northerners go out to a weirwood tree, and they do their oath to like the tree, and 
I just thought, well, if these people believe that this man is now the king in the north, wouldn't like wouldn't you have to do something to mark that? You know, and that's also what rituals are about, right? It's like, well, you can't just say, well, this person is X and now he's Y. You have to mark the transition so that people know, like, okay, that the world has changed now. Like, we've effected a change. He is now something he wasn't before. And and for the Northerners, it seems like that would be related to the trees and, and the land. Uh, but... But yeah, maybe maybe uh, this is part of the idea is that uh, we're not at that moment yet. Maybe, yeah. but but also, I don't know if this is a pl- piece of pedantic special pleading or not. Doesn't Rob get proclaimed uh, king in the north when he is in the south? Is it the Riverlands? I think they're not yeah. in the north, right? They're, so, and I think that there are hmm, there are very yeah. few weirwood trees in the south that have not been cut down. Yeah, yeah. Well, and well, and the riverlands are kind of like right in the middle, more or less, right? Yeah, yeah but it's below they're, the neck. It's, it is below the neck. Okay. Um. Yeah, and they're they're engaging in this war with the uh, Lannister slash Baratheons. Um. Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe maybe it was just cut so short that it never got to that real moment of of fulfillment. And with actual British monarchs, you are proclaimed. And then there's a coronation. And sometimes there's an extended mourning period before you have the the full-out coronation. Right. Or right. If, if you think about it in in Roman terms, right, you have the typical, the typical timeline for a while was that, you know, after some, some great victory or at least a great paying off of his troops, some provincial governor or general would be proclaimed imperator— Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. return to Rome oh, to sure. basically reinvade the to city Rome, yeah. and you know <laughs> and start the cycle all over yeah. again. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, yeah, like constant Constantine was proclaimed emperor mm-hmm. in York. Odd thing, right? Oh wow! And then he had to rush back to Rome, and that's where he won the Battle of Milvian Bridge, right? So uh, it all goes back to York, basically. Uh, but so the, a, a more successful York claimant yeah more he was a pretty uh, pretty successful ruler uh but if we think of the king in the north and the idea of 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 a northern kingdom separating it has a funny sort of parallel with scotland and the idea of scottish independence right um and do you know about how about how scottish monarchs were crowned i do and how that still ties in so I don't know a lot about the ritual, but traditionally a Scottish monarch would be seated on a stone slab kept at Schoon Abbey in Perthshire, which was called the Stone of Schoon or the Stone of Destiny, which is like a like a 300-pound stone slab of unknown origin. Some early writers said it was brought over from Ireland and that it was part of that like Irish Gaelic invasion of Scotland, but apparently geologists say, no, 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 it was mined somewhere close to Schoon. So it's like indigenously Scottish, right? During the wars between England and Scotland, the English took it, right? Requisitioned it and brought it back to Westminster. And then later, as part of the peace treaty, England agreed to give it back, to return it to Scotland. But like mobs rioted in Westminster 
and prevented the government from giving it back. So it remained in Westminster. This is this is kind of like the the theft of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, of. yeah. This is the 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 physical the physical object that can that the, can crown the king. The mysterious physical object that like gives the true authority to the king, right? And it remained in Westminster and when British monarchs, so in the 17 and 1800s, when British monarchs were crowned, they took the stone of Schoon and they slotted it into the coronation chair. So they were being, so they were in a sense sitting on the stone and being crowned as rulers of England and Scotland at the same time, right? Very convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a two it, for one. Yeah, two, exactly. It's a great two for one deal. British throne, great two yeah. for one deal. And it remained there until 1950 when some Scottish nationalist students broke in to Westminster Abbey and stole it, brought it out, broke it in two by accident, okay, buried the pieces in a field in Kent and camped out guarding it for several days until the coast was clear, and then they dug it up and somehow snuck it on a train to Scotland and hid it in like a government office, I think, in Edinburgh until the government figured out that that's where they had stashed it and they were forced then to return it in 1951. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, actually, no, they stashed in a government office. Then they produced it, put it at the Abbey of Arbroath, which has this history with Scottish independence, right? And then someone figured out that that's what it was and requisitioned it back to Westminster. And there it was until 1996 when the British government agreed to give it to the devolved Scottish or soon to be created devolved Scottish Parliament, Parliament, right? As part of this new Scottish movement, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the back and forth of the stone of Schoon. So, (laughs) so it, it would seem then that British, uh, sorry, Scottish and English union are not long for this world. then. Well, I, it, it does look that way. I mean, that's a whole other question. By, by virtue, no, I was going to just, you know, just by virtue of the, of the artifacts. The artifacts well, don't lie. Right. Well, and I think the, the plan, Does, the plan is that when the next British monarch is crowned, they will bring the stone back down to Westminster and put it in the chair to crown the next person. But this queen will never die. Right. Yeah. She's just she will be there for a thousand years. <laughs> there you go. But that's the idea. Right. But the but also the question is, when this queen dies, what's like, what is Scotland going to do then? Are they going to be like, oh, yeah, Charles, like we're so into Charles. We really love this monarchy. You know, I don't know. Maybe I think the signs ultimately point towards a separation, a re- a divorce yeah. of England and Scotland. And, and I think a large part, and the Stone of Schoon, like, embodies a lot of, you know, what we're saying here is that so many Scottish people don't really look at the British monarchy in Westminster, Buckingham, the Windsors, as, like, their people. They don't yeah. see it as their symbol, right? They think of Robert the Bruce, well, you know? Th- this is, I mean, this is the dynasty that's sitting there now was, yeah, one that, you know, deposed a Scottish one. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Stuarts. Yeah, got rid of the Stuarts. So all of these weird issues that we've been talking about are all like bound up 
in in this question of of the British crown and of of England and Scotland, right? Yeah, so I think we covered like pretty much everything I, w- I was thinking of, and I figured you know you'd be you'd be a good person to to kind of hash out these thoughts with. But lastly, as I said before, people compare Game of Thrones to Lord of the Rings, right? And contrast their styles, right? Showing supposedly a sort of evolution, right? But I'm sort of skeptical of that. And I think that it actually makes a lot of sense to compare Game of Thrones against other contemporary series like The West Wing, you know, this kind of like, oh, like we're technocratic eggheads who like Mm -hmm. are so naturally in place, like in the circles of power, pulling the strings and, and also like very dark stories of, of antiheroes like Breaking Bad, uh, The Wire. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, think of the Game of Thrones as compared to The Wire, right? The like, there's nobody's good. It's all shades of gray sort of gritty and things are going to get worse before they get worse. So it's like, it's a similar grittiness, but I think when you compare game of Thrones to other shows, it's less cynical and more idealistic and more hopeful. Right. In, In the sense, in the sense that it like offers the possibilities for things to be different in, in sort of giving you these alternative claimants that are, that would do things legitimately differently or in some different sense. And I, th- I th- and I think that the characters, I think that the characters are complex and there are so many characters that you can look at and imagine this person has the right qualities that they can make things right. Mm-hmm. And you might, you know, I might latch on to Sansa or Brienne of Tarth and someone else might latch on to Tyrion or Stannis, but Whoever it is, it's like there are these avenues towards imagining someone can pull this world back together, yeah. right? And that and that you're not wrong to have that hope. So you mentioned Aaron Sorkin, and so you know the newsroom. <laughs> yeah, that was the later show he did. Yeah. yeah. So I watched maybe like an episode and a half of that, which is, you know, maybe. Too much. Yeah, an episode, an episode, and a third too much. But, um, you know, it starts with this very stirring technocratic speech, blah de blah, and then the second episode, it's kind of, you know, it's like, oh, they're it's the return of the fifth estate, and they're going to take back the, you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna expose the truth and all this sort of thing, but because it's set in the past, right? Like this, I think the second episode is the um, the is it Deep Horizon, the the oil right, well, the Gulf of Mexico yeah. oil leak. Yeah, and it's like the second episode is that, but this the show was written like three years afterwards, so uh-huh. so they know all the dirt, right? Like they yeah, know yeah. you know about all of the whatever, like you know, lack safety standards or whatever, and so the you know, in the newsroom, this like, whatever it is, Dateline simulacrum, the, the, the people there are, are like discovering all of these things hours after the disaster is first reported. Somehow all the most brilliant reporters are there. And it's, but it is, it's this, it's this fantasy and it's, Uh you know what it, it uh reminds me of like, uh, it's like, it's like playing a, it's like playing a video game with invincibility on, right? Like yeah, it's like yeah. it's this it's this fantasy 
of like like playing like playing politics with knowing all the cheat codes and yeah, yeah. and the fact that this is something that is supposed to be stirring and inspiring inspiring yeah is is a little bit pathetic that's kind of how i felt about it yeah and i i mean i totally think i would feel the same way if i watched it and i mean to be fair i did enjoy some of the west wing that i watched it's not like a bad show but it leaves this bad taste in my mouth that there's kind of this assumption that we're the we're the we're the right people to have power because we're the smart guys right mm-hmm. and it's sort of circular it's self-fulfilling and there's nothing really about internal struggle or internal development yeah you know there's there, there's no character arc like really i mean i'm sure there are fans who will correct me <laughs> but but that but that's such a dramatic contrast i think to to game of thrones it's the question of who will survive right people are talking about who will survive people secondly talk about who will be the monarch right who will sit yeah. on the iron throne and the underlying question behind that is like whose character is good who has the strength of character right to to face this world they're yeah. in and i think well and i think that this is you know every Everybody will say, "Well, here's here's who I think should be the monarch, and here's who I think will be the monarch." Yeah, yeah. And the it's it's you know it's a very low bar, but the fact that that it opens you to that nuance, right? Yeah. It's it's not it's it's barely nuance. It 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 would not rate as nuance unless it were compared, you know, to a lot of the a lot of what passes for drama. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And doesn't West Wing start with he's already president, Bartlett? Yeah, who knows? Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, okay, is this fair? You think Game of Thrones, for a lot of the reasons we talked about last podcast episode and this one, it forces the viewer to think about what they mean when they say someone is good or someone has a good character, whereas West Wing it's kind of geared at just... It's just like masturbatory. I can relate to these people because I look like them and sort of am yeah. like them. Well, and there's and... there's no question. I mean, there's no question about who has the power, and there's no question about who should be in power. Right? You're presented these people. They may have their foibles, but you understand that they're basically like you. They're well intentioned. They're naturally the people who ought to be in power. Whereas that is precisely what's up in the air in Game of Thrones, and that's where I think most of the conflict is, right? And the White Walkers are like, let's raise some tension, right? But the real question is about who is prepared and who who do you want and who would you trust to see in that, you know, in leadership, right? So everything that's taken for granted in Aaron Sorkin world is in question in George R. R. Martin world, right? I guess that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's, it's about, yeah, I guess what you're... What you're trying to say is, or what you are successfully saying, is that George R. R. <laughs> potentially, possibly, <laughs> uh, is that George R. R. Martin is he's he's forcing you to think about what does it mean for someone to be fit fit to rule? Yeah, yeah. Whereas, <laughs> whereas, yeah, most other sort of contemporary fiction that addresses this, it's just like, well, you know, here are the good guys, and you can tell because you know. They're wearing color X and the bad guys are wearing color Y. Yeah. It's yeah. like, and I mean, Lord of the Rings 
you know, you you're, you're mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. you're yeah. sort of demurred from comparing them, but you know, Lord of the Rings is really about World War Two, right? Yeah, it's like or or some you know twisted simulacrum of, of World War Two. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's like it's very clear, you know, these are the good guys and these are mm-hmm. the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, couldn't be much more clear. All right, Sam. Do you want to close this out? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is this is uh, good stuff to have in mind as Game of Thrones returns. Maybe if I'm good, this will be out before the premiere, but probably not. But the season is coming back. Uh, so this is all good stuff. Now, uh, okay, let's go have a drink, right? Yeah, well, let's seriously. This has been a another episode of <laughs> Overthinking It with Samuel Biagetti. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. And Andrew Sorkin can suck it. Aaron's. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Let's try that again, boys and girls. All right, so oh, this is great. I can hear my own voice, which is <laughs> the the best, the well, best thing that can possibly happen. So I was I was talking about this with you last night, right? Which is that you know, one of the key signs of narcissism is that you enjoy the sound yes, of your own of your voice, <laughs> and I really, really enjoy the. Sound How of are you voice. not an academic, Jack? I know. Well, this is, you're missing your calling. I think I'm I'm more of an avocational person who talks when people are forced to listen than someone who wants to make it their job because then you just won't enjoy it as much.